You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. Shall we talk about Stephen King again? There's no one like him. He's the biggest industry in the state of Maine, and his influence in the worlds of horror is vast and indisputable. Since the 1970s, his books and the films and television based on them have reigned supreme, and if anything, they are more popular than ever. From Carrie to The Shining to The Shawshank Redemption to The Dead Zone to The Green Mile to Pet Cemetery to It and well beyond on theater screens and such television series as The Outsider, Under the Zone, Mr. Mercedes, Castle Rock, King's work is ubiquitous. It's hard to imagine that anyone else has had more of their work brought to the screen than the King himself. We've spoken before of how he connects with his audience by creating characters we can identify with, deep, rich human beings with depth and complexity, and putting them in situations we've all been through, and then thrusting them into otherworldly twists of fate. There's been such a broad range of amazing filmmakers who have taken on King adaptations. His appeal to the creative community is that vast. He's been adapted by David Cronenberg, John Carpenter, Stanley Kubrick, Toby Hooper, and on and on and on and on. And now we've gotten to the point where landmark King material is being remade. It, Pet Cemetery, Carrie, and among others, The Stand. I directed the original Stand miniseries back in 94, and it somehow became the most watched miniseries in American television. And now it's being revisited in a brand new nine-part limited series for CBS All Access. The man behind this new behemoth telling of King's most beloved novel is with us today. Josh Boone came out of a world of young adult romance with The Fault in Our Stars, as well as other romantic dramas and comedy as a screenwriter. But Josh's first love is the world of horror, and we'll compare notes about King, The Stand, and A Life in the Cinema. Let's talk. Josh, where did it start for you? What was the thing that took you down that dark path into the creep zone? Well, I mean, you know, I've told this story sort of ad nauseum, but it's like it really is truly my origin story, which is, you know, my my parents became quite uh, uh, evangelical Christians, born again, kind of in the late 1980s. And uh, a lot of things that had been okay before then became off limits. And mm-hmm. uh, they had to be sort of hidden on the box springs under my bed or, you know, <laughs> stored in, in unique places like inside a zippered leather thing for a Bible that I would take to church. Uh, so, you know, a lot of it, I think, was uh, that because it was kept pushed down and they didn't want me to have access to it, that's really what drew me to it more. So yeah. I guess it's always the forbidden, right, to some degree or another. Yeah, the forbidden uh, fruit. So you you grew up in Virginia Beach, which kind which mm-hmm. is kind of surrounded by evangelicals in a lot of ways, right? They're, yeah, they're, it's 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 where Pat Robertson's CBN is. Uh, so yeah. there there's a big Christian uh, uh, force there, and I, I even remember in the mid to like maybe 1985, 1986, I remember going on a camping trip with my family and with Nate, uh, who's my writing partner. Actually, we did New Mutants, and he's a producer on the stand and wrote a couple of those. Uh, and I vividly remember them picketing outside the theater for The Last Temptation of Christ, uh, which oh, wow. I didn't really know that much about it, but I saw it on TV that they were picketing. And I, we drove by a theater and I saw some. So it was pretty intense back then. And a lot of. Uh, well, you were only like out. seven or eight years old at the time, right? Yeah, absolutely. And when my mom burned my books, I was probably 12 or 11 or something like that, you know? Um, oh, uh, actual book burning. Yeah, she burned, and she did burn my copy of it and my copy of The Stand. Uh, I had the 1978 paperback of The Stand with a blue cover, and then I had a hardcover of it without a without a jacket because I was like, this jacket might even get me in trouble. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, well, that's the th- one of the striking things about you is how literary you are. You are so into books. You read endlessly. You've read everything within and without the genre, um, but. King must have been one of the first uh, one of the first entry drugs into your reading and love of horror, and especially in this forbidden zone. Um, 
but that forbidden zone also is the birth of a lot of supernatural uh, horror material, the good and evil of devil and Christianity of the stand, oh, yeah. for example. So I imagine that there was a lot of complexity to how you were affected by and how you approached that material. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think maybe part of the reason too, that I was attracted to him, like you said, is like when you're a kid and you kind of grew up and was told since you were born that the devil was real and that Jesus was the son of God. And if you didn't accept him into our, your heart, that you were probably not going to go to heaven, uh, you know, very literal. And they were a lot of rapture books around my house uh, at a certain time and uh, books about biblical prophecies and things that my parents read. So, you know, reading the stand was a very, uh, it was edifying in some ways because it was the it was the it was a a tale of Christianity that I actually believe, could believe in a little bit, mm -hmm. uh, and compared to to some of the ones that were around the house. But I mean, I was sort of uh, I was always amazed that that's the one my mom burned because I was like, you don't understand. This is the most Christian book <laughs> ever. God, God's at the end of it. I was, yeah. you know, so. So there was that, but she was never going to read it really. But she's a big Stephen King fan now. My dad really was huh? always a Stephen King fan. Uh, so, you know, they're, they're big fans now. I found once I made movies, they were a little more interested in that than in Jesus. Uh, seems to be the way the, <laughs> the way the cookie, the cookie crumbles. But uh, Yes, but once yeah, that they, door to the forbidden is open, there's no coming yeah. back. <laughs> but I really owe, uh, I owe my dad really my love of books. He had a library when I was a kid, and every time that I would go down at night to say goodnight to him, the light would be off, but his book light would be on, and he'd be reading any number of books all the time. So there were always books around the house, and uh, – obviously I watched a lot of movies and read a lot of comic books and, uh, but really books were, I remember looking at the spines of uh, some paperback Stephen King books on the bottom shelf of his, uh, of his bookcase uh, in really like the mid 1980s maybe. And he had the Toby Hooper paperback of Salem's lot that had the pictures uh -huh. in the middle. So yeah, I remember the yeah. bar, the Barlow picture of the stake and all that. Uh, there was a cover of Carrie where her face is sort of a crescent moon. Uh, Yes. I wanted to know about those stories before I really could even read them or understand what they were. They just uh, evoked so much. Yeah. So what were the things that you were allowed to watch and did they have an influence on you as well? Well, you know, it's funny. It's like my parents didn't really understand that Clive Barker wrote way more graphic stuff than Stephen King. So it's like, <laughs> wow. you know, I had a Magicka back then and I had Weave World and all that. And they did not know that in Weave World, a, a woman's vagina bites off a guy's penis. So they just weren't, <laughs> they were not, they weren't aware of these things. So it was that sort of thing where like, you know, there was a lot of music that was banned where we would get Christian cassette tapes and then we would tape, we'd dub over top of them Guns N' Roses CDs and anything that we kind of weren't allowed to have. We just always have it hidden behind something else. Uh, and, you know, even King books, uh, I tore the covers off the first three Dark Tower books and put uh, Frank Peretti's This Present Darkness around them because they were about the same size uh, <laughs> to try to be able to bring those to school to read. Uh, all sorts of tricks like that, you know. Uh, so, but it was really books then. Do you remember the first time you thought about making movies? Oh, God, well, you know, we made movies really since we were little kids. Uh, and when I say we, I really mean my best friend, Nate. I've known him really since the day I was born. Our moms are best friends. And he's been involved in a lot of the things that I've worked on. Uh, and we, you know, we had a comic book company growing up together. And we watched a lot of movies together. And uh, uh, all that creative stuff we sort of uh, facilitated in each other and did a lot of creative stuff, like tried to write little books when we were 10 and, you know, trying to write Vietnam stories on the typewriter because, you know, we had seen the pay-per-view preview of Platoon. Uh, <laughs> you know, just like we were always really creative and interested in doing that stuff and had fun doing it. But we we were really making movies probably by seven or eight. And when I say movies, I mean, like his dad would play the Joker. Nate would be Batman in one. I'd be, you know, another superhero in another. And we do a Back to the Future. I remember we did one called Time Trouble that was just a ripoff of Back to the Future. And then eventually we started writing our own stuff. And, uh, uh, you know, I even remember in high school, we were on the front page of the local newspaper because we were trying to do a feature at our high school that we shot maybe half of. It's still somewhere. Uh, right. So it's when, sort of always been a part of my life. When did it first appear to you that you could actually make a go of it, that there would be a door open to you that allowed you to work in the movie and television industry? 
I mean, being, I, I'd hate to say this. I'm trying to think of a nice way to say it. Growing up being like someone who as a kid had a lot of like believed a lot of religious stuff because his parents told him or the mythology of a lot of that stuff really until I was in my early teens uh, and started to sort of question that stuff. Uh, I think being able to believe, I think believing in that stuff and having fervent belief in something allowed me to, uh, to do sort of like a, a, a hurdle or a, a mental trick inside my own head where I didn't give myself really any other options. And I was just very stubborn and, uh, crashed my head against the brick wall. You know, I mean, I was sending faxes to CAA when I was 16 or 17. Wow. I was, you know, I flew out there and met even an agent or a manager then, uh, I mean, we were, that's the only thing we wanted to do and the only thing we really ever cared about. Uh, but I mean, vivid memories from my childhood were like when the stand aired, we taped wow. that on VHS, you know, the nights that it aired <laughs> and Nate, Nate was a really good artist. So he drew like an amazing side, you know, the side tape you would put on the side of the yeah. VHS tape. So, you yeah. know, he drew like Mother Abigail on one of them and Randall Flagg on the tape too. Uh, oh. And, you know, we rewatched these TV miniseries of Stephen King stuff, I mean, so many times during the early 90s. I mean, I'm saying like five, six, seven times when we were wow. when we were kids. So, uh, you know, we grew up watching your stuff and we grew up watching the whole spectrum from horror to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest to like my dad had a pretty big uh, movie collection and I watched The Godfather every Christmas with him. Uh you know, we, we watched horror stuff. We watched kind of high art stuff. We watched sort of everything in between. Yeah, it's interesting because in 1960, as a kid, a very small child, I went to the drive-in with my family to see the original Psycho. I had oh. no idea that 30 years later, I would be making the sequel prequel to that. So here you are watching The Stand in 1994 yeah. with no idea at all that in 2020, you would be premiering your own nine-hour version of it yeah and i mean you know it's hard for me even to say my nine-hour version it's like i uh, you know i was i obviously carried i'm sort of this i would say i was the spearhead it's like i've worked on yeah. it for about now probably five years maybe six years and really carried it from warner brothers to cbs all access and that was really with my agents at caa and my lawyer telling me the whole time we'll never get this book out of warner brothers ever yeah. uh, it has too much money against it uh, for all the drafts that they had from all those years. So again, man, I just sort of, I just did my stubborn thing and we just kept trying and trying. And I was able to accumulate uh, a, a pretty amazing cast of actors over the years. Like Whoopi Goldberg has been on it really since it was at Warner Brothers and Amber Heard uh, for that long as well. And Greg Kinnear, who was in my first movie. So I was able to really create a good amount of momentum by having all these amazing actors who were interested and uh, CBS took a shot at us, uh, and I was able to really deliver the cast and deliver, uh, I say deliver, but it's like I told them King would write the final episode, and he did. So yeah, I was able to uh, to make good on all the the promises that I made when, uh, when we went and set it up. But it was, uh, you know, a really difficult, exhausting thing to make. I was really lucky to have all the amazing partners that I have, the, sh the showrunner, Ben Cavill, uh, Taylor Elmore, people I worked with in all my other movies, like my editors edited the show, my composers scored it. Uh, having all those people there to carry that weight, you know, beyond my episodes, uh, it was a Herculean effort on on their part as well. Yeah. And you did it, you did it all by yourself. I mean, you, <laughs> well, when I finished directing those first two, I mean, dude, it was ex it was exhausting, and I carried it so many years, it was really exhausting. But yeah. you you really did shoot that entire series. I did. Let's get more into the stand a little bit later. I, I want to still find our way to there. I want to see how the progression sure. happened. You got your first opportunities as a screenwriter, and and it was in romantic comedy drama, uh, romantic drama, and you had an interesting situation in that you wrote screenplays for actors who directed, for James Franco and for um, Katie Holmes. All right, yeah. You know, that's pretty fascinating that because that's a very specific kind of filmmaker, actor turned director. And Franco, right. of course, has directed a lot. Yeah. But what was the door that opened that up? Was this a spec script that you pitched or was it something that was an assignment? No, you, you know, you just meet like minded people when you go have meetings with them. Um, 
I've always been actor driven when I've written and how I've done a lot of what I do is by getting the cast members together to Avengers assemble and go do it. Uh, you know, we're working on now, uh, we've been working on it for probably four years. Uh, uh, Bob Mayer's Trouble Boys about the band, The Replacements. And like, we probably have like a dozen actors attached to that that we'll take out right after Christmas. Uh, so, you know, I spend six months just doing the casting private leave and just to be able to really go with an amazing package and be able to 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 get people to really want to invest beyond just the idea for the movie, but really the the vision for what it's going to be in terms of the the casting for it and everything, uh, which has so much to do with getting the money to, to you know, to make the, the films that you want to make. Uh, uh, so, you know, you meet people who uh, some are more interested in just acting and then you meet people who want to be filmmakers and uh, or want to be writers or are writers and just you end up having conversations and you end up, uh, I don't know, just doing projects together because it felt like the right thing to do or you liked the person and thought it would be interesting to work with them. Yeah, well, the the relationship between directors and actors is acutely important to any film. And the immediacy of the learning process when you are with these actors, particularly something like The Stand, which has such a massive cast. Yeah. We had a, we had 125 speaking roles. I imagine you had at least that many. Oh, but, sure, for sure. But just to be able to communicate with each one on a playing field that's unique to them, because actors approach their work differently individually. Oh, and yes. To be able to speak their language is something you have to learn. Like, if you get the opportunity to rehearse beforehand, that's great. But if you don't, like in a lot of filmmaking today, um, you have to learn while you're shooting, while you're doing. Yeah. Who, who takes more takes to ramp up to their best work? Right. Who Who is yeah. best and fades out quickly? You know. So yeah. tell me a little bit about how you your, your work with actors in that regard. I mean, I, I try to, to, to have as good of a personal relationship with them as I can and spend time with them before we go do that. You know, a lot of these actors for the stand I knew or had met before or we'd spoken over the years and uh, I'd shared drafts with them over the years. So uh, you hope to build up enough of a relationship so that there's a bit of camaraderie and a bit of a feeling of uh, you're all in it together and, and all that uh, when you hit the ground. And uh, obviously that doesn't always happen. And those times you've got to put on your psychiatrist hat and be like, what kind <laughs> of actor are you? Uh, <laughs> yes. You know, a little bit where you sort of need to give them whatever they need. And, uh, you, you know, a lot of the time they just need space to do their work. And uh, yeah. uh, sometimes it's just not bombarding this, them with things. Cause I find that it's sort of not that helpful to uh, just keep giving people corrections over and over. It's like, oh, there's yeah. kind of an, a more organic way to do it. Uh, and so it helps to have a bit of a, camaraderie with them you know i've worked with a lot of the same actors again and again like uh nat wolf i've worked with he was in the stand uh he's uh uh, uh there's so many names nick it's like uh oh yeah he's, I he's, know. He, he's mr flag's right hand so uh, oh, lloyd henry he's lloyd, yeah. he's lloyd henry but you know nat yeah. nat nat was so much younger originally when this was he was going to be uh uh he was going to be harold so uh -huh. So, you know, by the time we finally got this made, Nat Wolf was, was, was the right age to be Lloyd. Uh, right. and, you know, uh, and we had Owen Teague, uh, who was in It, and he'll be in uh, Trouble yeah. Boys as well. Uh, and we carried a lot of these people who go to Trouble Boys. Odessa Young, Kat McNamara, uh, Nat, Owen, uh, really good people. Uh, and I guess it's like that, those people you get along with, you work with again. Uh, you've certainly had that over the years with people you've Absolutely. worked with multiple times. Yeah. Uh, it's just sort of a like-mindedness in terms of what you're trying to do. Yeah, you want people who can share your enthusiasm and your point of view and 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 even not have the same point of view, but the enthusiasm for it where those conversations make the character better and make your own work better uh, when you're visualizing the entire thing. So I was going to try and keep from going into the stand too deeply, but let's go ahead and do that and then we'll talk about the new mutants and fault in our stars and, and these completely different genre that you've been able sure. to, to work with, but let's go ahead and dive into the stand. The Whoopi Goldberg thing is so fascinating because we almost got her for the original. Miniseries. I know. And she, she's told me this story as well. Yeah. That she's a huge Stephen King fan 
And, you know, we were thrilled at the possibility, especially it was at the height of her feature film acting career. Yes. But we just couldn't get it to work, whether it was timing or money or what. Nobody let me know that. But um, and of course, Ruby D is nobody's second choice. I mean, no. she she is uh, she was a phenomenon just yeah. a, and a wonderful human being but tell me did it all come together with Whoopi at the center or were there other cast members that helped kick it into high gear beforehand well i mean it's like i'd had Whoopi the longest cuz really like i'm a person who i've never seen the view so so <laughs> my my experience was like i grew up watching ghost and the color purple and sister yeah. act so like to me, she was like this Academy Award winning sledgehammer of an actor who hadn't been anything, in my opinion, that that merited her, you know, her skill and her prowess in a while. And I really wanted to see her play this role. I knew that she was interested in it. So she was the very first person and only person we ever talked to. Uh, I just reached out to her, I think, through her agent all those years ago. And we just started talking and uh, went out and visited her. And we just stayed hand in hand ever since and got it done. Uh and, you know, it took a lot of actors to get it done. Uh, and, you know, a lot of it was just uh, to to get all these actors together, you know, that many people, that many players, and you're trying to get as many of them to be notable players, you know? Right. Uh, it's a really big orchestra to do that and pull that off. Uh, so you spend a lot of time uh, managing all that to make all the pieces slide into place so you have the cast that you want or close enough. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. When we were doing it, ABC first said to us, you know, Stephen King is the star. Don't worry about movie stars. And then when it got green lit and the script was so good and everything was going forward, and they were, well, what about, what about? And they wanted to start putting Brat Pack actors in there, like mm. Molly Ringwald and Rob. No. And suddenly, uh, no. We're star fuckers too. <laughs> and, you know, it, it, I sold it really is a, I sold it as a star studded. I told them I wanted it to be like JFK where you knew everybody in it, that there's yeah. so many people. And if you knew them, you'd really get close to them quicker. Like with yours, I feel like the connection to so many of those actors and yours is what engages you so quickly. You hang on to them because you feel a little bit of who you felt when you watched other things they were in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you've got a known uh, actor, well, Gary Sinise was not really known at the time. It kind of made him a star and yeah. and led led to him being cast in Forrest Gump. Yeah, but but I'd only you know, seen him in like Of Mice and Men. I think I had exactly. seen that, and that was it. That's how I hired him when I saw Of Mice and Men. His agent at CAA sent me two five dollar bills to see another <laughs> actor in that movie, and when I saw that movie. I said, well, wait, what about Gary Sinise for Stu Redman? And it changed the face of everything. Oh, yeah. But um, he, the he's, just, having a strong, it feels like having that strong Stu is so important. You chose such a wonderful one. Uh, I love, you met Marsden uh, when you came up. Uh, he's, he also, to me, had a lot of those same qualities and he exudes sort of, uh, you know he'll do the right thing. You know, yeah, it's like it was sort of that. It's the Gary Cooper strength, I think. Yes. It's something that you you don't doubt for a moment his honesty and sincerity. Yeah. And and the good heart behind everything. Yeah. Well, absolutely. Let's, let's talk logistically. I shot in six states and it, you know, it, it was a massive undertaking and we shot in Las Vegas and we shot in New York City for two days. Uh and we shot mostly in Salt Lake City, but a couple of weeks in Pittsburgh. And you were basically confined to Vancouver area, British Columbia. How did you manage Absolutely. to pull off crossing, crossing the entire nation as the story does, but staying in British Columbia? Well, you know, I mean, that was, uh, you know, Aaron Hay was my uh, production designer uh, who did the entire show with numerous directors other than me as well. You know, with Vincenzo Natale, uh, some amazing He's people. Great. So it's like, you know, it's like Aaron who did, you know, he really had that job with his entire department to figure out the logistics of a lot of that. And uh, you, you, it's fun that, you know, everything's been shot in Vancouver over the years. So you sort of believe that you can pull it off, but it's, it's always trying to find places you don't feel like you've seen before because yeah. you and I have watched the X-Files and we've seen it all. So, <laughs> And so, I've shot all over Vancouver. Yeah. 
Yeah, I did love shooting there. It's beautiful there. Uh, and, you know, I really managed like, you know, I really dealt with Stu and Stovington and I dealt with Harold and Fran and Ogunquit. Uh, and I dealt with some Boulder stuff because, yeah. you know, uh, the one thing that I really brought to it, and we did a year in a writer's room with me, with the showrunner Ben Cavill, with uh, with Nate, my best friend, with Jill, my other producing partner. Uh, it took a year just to even go for my Warner Brothers drafts, but I just knew I always wanted to do it nonlinear. And so it was always done. It was always, uh, ever since I started writing it, it was nonlinear as a movie. And so that's really what I brought to it conceptually that I helped, I hoped would make it different enough from yours that it wouldn't just be us doing the exact same thing you did, but it's R rated, you know? Uh, Cause yeah. you did, yours is so good. And King already wrote that one. So it's like, uh, it, there's no reason to do it again, unless you've got a strong enough point of view to try to pull it off. Yeah. And tell me about the, the complications of that. Did it lead to any problems of booking an actor you might've wanted or, or helped you get an actor you might've wanted, or what were the things that, that gave you pause that in particular you didn't want to retread? Well, I mean, it's hard cause you love so much of it. So you want to do a lot of it, you know, yeah. and, and we obviously updated things uh, to, to make them present day and all that. Uh, but, you know, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I don't know if I want to reveal, I can't, I don't know if I can reveal. No, no, so you don't have to. But, uh, but I guess I would say the way that my, the very first episode opens that I did opens the exact same way, pretty much that the script for Warner brothers did. Uh, some and I did like read that. those feature scripts as well. Oh, and they yeah, were yeah, great. Did. Oh, they were that's great. right. So yeah, I'm dying right. to see. I'm dying to see how it turned into a nine-hour series. Well, hopefully it's even better now. I mean, we, I didn't really know. I've obviously watched TV over the years, but I don't really know anything about TV. So we went and got this amazing uh, writer and showrunner Ben Cavill. He'd worked on like Justified, which was a show I really liked, and uh, some stuff like that. And uh, helped us sort of shape it into a television series so that it could work yet still do this sort of uh this dance between the nonlinear, which is really just between boulder and between the past you know uh which was a way to kind of like for me make it a little less walking dead with people walking across the country without you know so i guess i would say this everybody's cannibalized the stand over the years you've seen it in so many horror movies and tv series it was was all about I was shocked with the first episode of Walking Dead. It was like, wow, I made this. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, truly. I mean, there would be, I don't think there'd be a Walking Dead without it. So it was trying to figure out really structural ways and conceptual ways to make some of that stuff fresh and new again uh, and bring some new stuff to it as well. And then King was, uh, you know, was so kind that he wrote this last episode for us. I had read years ago, he did, you know, this is one of these events where he'd, he'd answer a bunch of questions. And he made the huge mistake of telling this audience that uh, he had thought about the story that he wanted to do after the stand. And so I was on that like a shit on, you know, fly on shit. I was I was in there and I was like, so it took years, but I, I gently coerced him over the years, hoping that he would write the story for us. Uh, and we were really, really lucky that he did it. Uh, so you actually have the final episode, episode nine, written by King, takes place after the book concludes. Yes. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's, I, I wouldn't call it a sequel. I just would say it's almost like a little novella that takes place after it. That's like a coda. Um, and the day that I got that was probably the greatest day of my life when that showed up in the, the email. Because, uh, you know, even in the writer's room for a year, we had King's episode at the very end of the board just as a question mark, you know, right, always right. hoping that he would commit. But we had never quite got him to commit. Uh, and the timing worked out well. And I guess he started thinking about this story and thought that he could do something with it. So, uh, like I said, it took a huge, an enormous amount of people uh, from the writing side of it, from the production side of it, a, a monumental task uh, and all the behind the scenes people. I mean, so many people did it and made it work. And I sort of micro focused on my two hours that we shot right at the beginning, almost like a feature. Right. So uh, you shot it like a series, uh, like one long movie, though, right? So you were jumping no, all I mean, over. The you did it a, an episode at a time? Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think wow. everybody maybe would have preferred to do because I didn't really I didn't understand any of that stuff when we said we were going to go do this. You know, I assumed that it right. would be that it would be cross-boarded like a movie, but it's it's just cross-boarded within episodes. 
Uh, ah, so yeah, so so at least that uh, that was sort of easy. My first and last episode were cross boarded a bit, so I was shooting the King episode and the first episode uh, at the same time. Wow, interesting. Well, what do you think for you as a filmmaker? What was the most challenging part of this? Um, letting go, man, of the of the rest of it. You know, like uh, not not like because I'd had it for so long. It's like. Uh, for so long, you know, I mean, it was something that I really had to have great emotional uh, weight and attachment to just to get it through the system that we got it through. So uh, being able to let it go after I had done mine and go edit those and like know that the, all the work that we did over the years would pay off and the cast had been assembled and it was all going to work. Uh, you know, that, that was the both the easiest and the hardest part, but uh, it, it all worked out great. The show was uh uh, all the finished stuff that I've seen thus far is fantastic. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited for it to come out. I'm excited to see if, uh, if it captures the same lightning. I mean, dude, you had literally the most watched television miniseries of all time when it aired. It, it's true. And, you know, it was four nights of two hours each mm -hmm. night. And each night the ratings went up. So obviously people were not just watching it, but liking it and yeah. telling their friends and the like. And it was a thrilling thing because I'd only done things of a very small scale before that. Yeah. And then fortunately after Sleepwalkers, I had earned the trust of Stephen King who wrote all of the scripts himself. Yes. And you know, this 467 page script that I had to work from. And then we worked a hundred days in six States, like I said, and it was just, there's how did no you not? How did you not die? Just to, just how did you not just keel over? <laughs> I I don't know. There was one day when I got an impacted tooth, and it made me nauseous, and it gave me a flu, and I could not work. And it was a Friday, and because Gary Sinise is also a director, I called him and said on my deathbed, said, Gary, <laughs> would you please take over, the, uh, and and would you be interested in directing this one day for us? And he said, Mick. I'm sure you've got insurance. Give this crew a day off. They need it. They will love you. And you'll figure out a way to make it fit into the, it was a hundred day schedule. And, you know, we worked 13 five day weeks and then we worked seven, six day weeks that yeah. were absolutely insane. You know, it's supposed to get easier, not harder as you go on, but yeah, not in this case, but it was, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel was a train coming. So it was it was never easy, um, but it was always amazing. And, uh, you know, nothing I would ever live through again. Uh, God, no. <laughs> the yeah. one time, well, it's like these projects that take so long to carry. You know, I think about, uh, you know, the stand, like I said, five, six years, something like that. Uh, New Mutants, another four plus years, you know, all these things take a lot of time. So it's like, you know, doing some things faster would be ideal. <laughs> yes, so. it would. Well, how easy was it for you to give up the other seven hours of the show? Because you had written two feature film scripts that were going to you were going to direct yourself, and to turn it into a a series more than a mini series, a limited series, but still a, a series of one hour shows. Mm. And so you've got six or seven other directors on there. Tell me how that was to give up part of this baby you'd been carrying in gestation for five, six years. Well, you know, we did, we weren't even really sure would I direct them all, would I not direct them all was sort of always an up in the air question. I always knew I was going to do uh, the first one and the last one for sure. Right. You know, I knew the King one I had to do uh, and that I could then get hit by a bus and God would be like, <laughs> yes, so. <laughs> uh, so, you know, those ones were always like ones that I, uh, those were always ones that were sort of me. And then the other ones were just like, it all became based really on the schedule and the budget and the way the show needed to be made in order to get it done uh, in an effective way. And it's like, it would be very hard to prep the episode that was the next episode while I was shooting that episode. Uh, just all those things that made it problematic. But I was able to go and prep the first and the last one really like a movie where we were there for several months and we're even able to prep the second one a little bit before we had hired the director. But, uh, you know, we really got some incredible filmmakers to come and real Stephen King fans and uh, people who've made great films and done great television. Uh, and, dude, you know, we really wanted to empower them to go make the coolest episodes that they could make, you know? That's great. Who are some of the directors besides you? 
and oh, yeah vincenzo did did uh you know did the last two um uh uh let me think he's gonna be bad mick uh there's this amazing independent film called uh blow the man down we hired the, mm. the two uh directors who made that film um they were fantastic uh you know we had you know i guess i guess the saddest one was we had carl franklin and he had to pull out at the last moment uh or pretty close to when he was going to do it and uh we had to get somebody else but uh he was somebody one false move is a movie that i loved so much uh me too uh, so he's sort of a hero and uh devil in a blue dress and all that so uh that was the only disappointment I would say was hoping to get him. Uh, but they, they were all great. Everybody did a really good job. It just was a, a really tough shoot, I guess, for any one of the episodes you were doing because you're managing so many moving pieces, you know, and the behind the scenes people like, you know, my visual effects supervisor, Jake Braver, who's one of the best in the business. He was also a second unit director on it. He's a producer on it. Uh, everybody was wearing a bunch of different hats and doing all the work they could to get that thing done. Well, I know that when we made our version of The Stand, it was in the public consciousness still, even though it came out in 1979, when you mm. came out as well, by the way, <laughs> when you were yeah. born. Um, but uh, all, almost all of the actors had read the book before they got the role mm. or read the book as soon as they got it or yeah. when they were auditioning for it. Was everyone familiar with it uh, in your cast beforehand? Yeah, I mean, you know, you know, a lot of them, yeah, I mean, obviously Whoopi just read as much Stephen King yeah. as we've read. Uh, I even remember that she did a blurb for It when it came out in 85. I remember walking into like a Walden Books with my dad and there was a big bloody like Whoopi Goldberg quote. And it was like, whoa, she likes, <laughs> she likes Stephen King. Uh, and then, you know, Amber Heard is one of the biggest readers you, you'll ever meet. I mean, she's like a voracious reader and is reads uh, science fiction and stuff like that religiously. So uh, she was familiar with all that. And we've been talking about Nadine for for years, uh, really since even The Fault in Our Stars, uh, which is when I started in the editing of that, working on the stand for Warner Brothers. Uh, uh, so yeah, and you know, Greg Kinnear for sure. Uh, but oh, everybody, yeah. everybody got deep into reading the book, you know, once we were going to make it. Uh, we made sure that all our department heads had read the book. Uh, everybody sort of had it on hand uh, at all times to help. So tell me what were the important themes to you? For me, one of the most important things was really exemplified by the scene where uh, Stu Redman escapes from the institution and he runs and everybody's dead behind him and, and he runs out into the air and he jumps over the fence and lands on the grass on his back and he looks up and there's the American flag waving. Yeah. And it gave us the opportunity to be patriots again without being bullshit patriots, to really believe right. in starting over the country, giving it a new start with the philosophy under which it was created. So for me, that was kind of one of the most important themes. But, you know, yours is different and it's got more moving pieces and it continues beyond where we ended. So well, I'd love to hear what some of the things were important to you about it. I mean, I mean, a little different for me, but not, I mean, obviously we deal with all these things and, you know, there's a lot of time spent in Boulder and like uh, the reimagining of America, you know, in this, this sort of post-apocalyptic world is sort of a time, I mean, like you said, I mean, it's a timely thing now. I mean, we're yeah, still no, trying to figure out right this moment what the country is. Uh, so it's like that sort of thing was fascinating to me. But again, because of my upbringing, I'm, I'm interested in a lot of the religious stuff and interested in... Uh, the, the supernatural elements that cross over into biblical territory. I really loved all the Mother Abigail stuff in the book. Uh, and I mean, you know, I, I read that under my bed really when I was 11 or 12. And when I would see my mom's feet go by, I'd shove it up there into the box spring. But I, I mean, I really remember reading the Nick Andros part where he was attacked by the dogs. Uh, oh, you know, yeah. all that stuff with Nick Andros, I, I didn't shoot, but I love all that stuff so much in the book. Uh, his journey and him taking care of the people who you know the people who wronged him i thought was uh was pretty beautiful uh uh beautiful biblical sort of uh i don't know he i wouldn't say he's a christ figure even though he sort of was a christ figure a little bit but uh yeah he's yeah. an important character for me so i like a lot of that stuff i mean i don't know mick i love it all it's so good uh it's such a it's got so many wonderful characters i remember getting lost in that book so many times growing up i guess it's just uh mm -hmm. trying to get in 
kind of your, I don't know, your, what you saw in your head when you read it, right? I mean, those, yeah. Im- yeah. those images that you remembered. Uh, so a lot of it was trying to capture that. Yeah, yes, yes. There, there are so many iconic scenes in that book, and I can't wait to see how they're handled. But something that you dealt with, you had the good fortune of ending shooting a movie about an epidemic right before a pandemic broke out. So all of your post-production, or most of it, you were doing during the pandemic, right? I was lucky. It's like my my post, like my really hyper-specific post on my episodes was done before the pandemic ended since uh-huh. I shot first. So I was really lucky. I got to go sit in the editing room with my guys, my, my editors for my movies like I do on everything. Um, but yeah, they had to continue and do all that stuff uh, it, remotely from then on out. Yeah. All the editing was done remotely uh, for months and months and months and months and months and months and months. And months. So yeah. it's a well, huge, how- huge undertaking. My editors as well. You know, I mean, the, the, a lot, a lot of work. Well, so amazing that this version of The Stand, the ultimate pandemic movie, will be released as we are suffering through the actual thing. Now, there's a huge difference in The Stand. 99% of the, percent of the population is dead. Yes. Maybe 99.9. And here it's a small percentage of the population who are infected and an even smaller one who die. But it's still this massive worldwide pandemic. Yeah. And it can't help but weigh on you a little bit. And I know everybody asks, interviews me about it, and I'm sure you get the same thing too. Uh, comparing and contrasting the real world pandemic and the world of your stand. Yeah, I mean, we're we're so much luckier. It's funny. I'm sort. I'm almost more interested. That stuff's all interesting, and it's really strange that it happened at the time that it did. But it's like, I I think a little bit more about kind of what we're going through almost right now, right this second. You know, with the election and everything. Yeah, so as much. As we're of recording that, this, as we're recording this, we yeah. Have not- We've not got the final tally yet on the election results. When I, so, when I see yeah. people crowded outside the election voting places looking like, you know, I don't know, it gets scary. So it's like, you know, I feel a lot of that sort of stuff when I think about the stand and about flag and yeah. all that. Uh, I've yeah. Maybe that stuff uh, it might resonate as well. And obviously what you said, man, I mean, the looking again at what is America and what is it that we all believe, which is what's happening now in the world, uh, especially in ours. Uh, I think is like, again, the thing that's sort of constant. Uh, King's a good gut check for everybody, right? Just in general. <laughs> he is. Uh, well, well, one thing I thought I'd add, you asked one more question that I didn't get to answer, which was you asked about the last episode. The, yeah. thing, that I, the thing that I will say about it that I, that I like a lot is, uh, you know, the, the, the final act of the book is absent of Fran in a lot of ways, because uh, for obvious um, reasons, if I'm not going to say yeah. spoilers for a 40-year-old book, but it's like, for obvious reasons, Fran is is not involved in the last act of the book. It was very nice because he brings the whole thing back around to her, and she's very much the focus of the final piece, wow. uh, which is Odessa Young, who's one of the greatest actresses uh, working today. She's incredible. Uh, uh, Going to work with her again on the, the Replacements movie. Wonderful. So away from the stand now. Let's talk about The Fault in Our Stars. Here's sure. this, y, this very successful YA novel. And how did it get into your hands? Was it something that you originated and developed and made mm-hmm. happen? Or it was, this This guy seems like he'd be right for this. I mean, I made a little... So, I mean, I really owe my career to a woman named Judy Cairo, who produced Crazy Heart. Uh, uh-huh. And she produced uh, the Elvis miniseries with uh, Jonathan Reese meyer back in the day. Uh, amazing oh, producer. She's done a lot of great films. Uh, she really took a chance on me. I had been out here writing scripts for probably 10 years, had a lot of things that almost happened and fell apart, would have actors get attached to things. And then, you know, we couldn't get the financing. Uh, I had enough positive reinforcement to keep me going, but nothing had quite yet happened. Uh, and, you know, she really took a chance on me and we went and made my first movie, uh, Stuck in Love, that I uh, was called Writers originally. But uh the only thing they changed was the title. So I was at least grateful for that. But uh, I was really lucky because that script um, generated a lot of interest at CAA and generated a lot of interest for the cast there. And I was able to cast two of my favorite actors in the movie, uh, 
Jennifer Conley and Greg Kinnear, and I met uh, I I met my De Niro, Nat Wolf, who's in who's in uh, who's in a lot of my stuff. So he's sort of like uh, you know he's been in everything, and he's going to play Paul Westerberg in the Replacements movie. So uh, he's sort of my my guy, and he's a good friend of mine. Uh, that whole cast was so wonderful to me, and like I had a great cinematographer named Tim Orr who really took me under his wing, who did all of David Gordon Green's films. Uh, I was and you really, had a cameo by a certain famous author from Maine. I put what I call Stephen King porn in the movie, which is I took, I did, <laughs> I had the kid in the book, you know, the kid in the movie have a bookshelf with Stephen King books on it and had a lot of the, the books that I had when I was young. Um, and so I was really lucky that I wrote a little bit part for him you know, it's funny, kind of like the role Stan Lee plays in Mallrats, except not in person, you know, where like, where yes. Kevin, you know, where, where, where Brody, Brody gets to go meet, gets to meet him at the comic book thing. Uh, this was a little bit more just sort of like an affirmation of something he did for me, because when I was a kid, I wrote him a letter uh, and he told him my mom burnt my books in the fireplace and all that stuff. Uh, I wrote him a letter and he was really kind enough to sign some books for me and sent them to me when I was little. Uh, I sent him the Plume Dark Tower paperback box set that had the first three books in it. They mm. were, you know, so iconic in terms of the artwork for me. They like filled my imagination, you know, back then so much. Uh, and I sent those off into the universe, hoping he would, uh, hoping he'd get them because I think I had read like in an Overlook Connection newsletter when they used to send them in the mail yeah. uh, that he'd sign books or something if you, if you sent one to him and. Uh, he signed that book for me and he sent me a copy of uh, My Pretty Pony, the oversized one. Uh, mm -hmm. And, you know, wrote Keep an Eye on Your Pretty Pony, Stephen King. So I went back <laughs> to him all those years later and uh, just asked him if he would please just do a voice a voice for me and have a phone conversation with Nat and it to kind of be the the writer that he was that he was so obsessed with in the movie who gives him sort of uh, words of support at the end. Uh, yeah. So it was sort of supposed to be sort of just a thank you to him for for what he did for me when I was a kid. Well, it was very cool. Um, now we, you gave us your origin story. Sure. Now you had an opportunity in the comic book world that really goes more in a horrific direction than most comic book adaptations mm -hmm. do, with the New Mutants, and it became a bit of a horror story for you. It's the release of that was such <laughs> a complicated. It was. Time. It was really. It was. It was. It was harrowing. It was horrific. Uh, I mean, you know what happened. It, I, I mean, who knows? It's I, I can't. I don't even know what happened. And I've done I've done so many interviews about that one. Uh, it, it's just been like I mean, that one was really really difficult. A because of the merger. B because of just massive things that happened in the infrastructure of Fox's X Men universe because of the merger. You know, uh, yeah. they complicated all of our lives and everything else. And like. You know, I mean, there was a once again a really long development process where we were rewritten probably six or seven times every time we turned a draft in by another writer. So oh, you know, geez. we never got to really make the movie that we wanted to make. But again, I brought a fantastic cast to the table. Uh, they did a great job. I do like the movie, uh, but none of it, it didn't turn out for anybody the way anybody really hoped that it would turn out, and we never got the chance to. Uh, to fix it or do anything to it once it was done. Uh, we never got to go back, which is sort of unheard of for a movie of that size. Uh, so I would yeah. just say it was disappointing because of all the work that went into it and the great performances that the cast gave. Uh, and, you know, I think too, it's like the pandemic. It's like when I look at like Tenet, which got way lower Rotten Tomato score than I ever would have thought a Christopher Nolan movie would get. I think the pandemic dinged us all 10 or 15 points just because of that, you know? So yeah. they really didn't want us to go they really didn't want people to go to theaters. Critics didn't. And Fox really didn't uh, do any favors for the movie because they refused to do proper screenings for critics like they did with Tenet. Obviously, that's Tenet. Right. Uh, you know, I'm fucking nobody by comparison. But uh, the, not giving them a safe avenue to go see that movie really made them infuriated. And so it was pretty it was pretty much it was right out of the gates. Pretty. uh pretty brutal so yeah and they didn't they didn't throw any money at the release like they did with tenant even though tenant could not well, play much in the way of theaters you know tenant costs so much and it's it's nolan who's a genius and all that and like yeah. this one really didn't it didn't come off exactly how we wanted you know the problem too is we never really could agree between the studio and us what this movie was or what the content was, was going to be in terms of the rating uh 
you know, it was just all that. And there were shifting producers throughout the process where, you know, we didn't have, you know, somebody was there who went to make another movie and somebody new came in right when we were about to go make it. Uh, huge yeah. plot changes six weeks before we shot where, you know, a huge plot change that caused an actor upset where we had to get another actor because the studio wanted us to, uh, you know, make uh, one of the main characters end up being evil at the end. Uh, we did all this stuff as we were asked and we're the best partners that we could be during the process. It was just a frustrating process. I bet. Well, well, let's talk about one more thing before we wrap up. I want to ask you about, oh, you, because you, you, you did uh, ask about, I feel like you asked about fault in our stars and I didn't answer a uh, stuck in love, obviously got that movie, got me that movie. Uh, Nat Wolf actually sent me the script to fault in our stars and kept telling me that I should read it. I had a close friend who died of stage four lung cancer. He oh, actually man. owned the record store uh, in Burbank that I worked at for a long time before I made movies. Uh, and so I didn't really want to do a cancer movie. Um, yeah, I bet. At all. But uh, d- d- I was persuaded. I'm a huge fan of Cameron Crowe movies, and I really love John Green's yeah. book, and I thought I could do some of that sort of thing. Yeah. You know, I I worked at Tower Records in my formative years, and Cameron Crowe and I were living in San Diego when he was – 15 and I was 17, we both wrote for the San Diego door, which is yeah. what almost, almost famous was about. So that's another one of these, uh, he, 60 degrees. Uh, he's, he's been a real, uh, good, 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 kind person in my life. He's a really great guy. Uh, because of his uh, replacements history, like he, over the past couple of years has been nothing but encouraging, supportive and read drafts and stuff. Uh, signed a copy of fast time at Ridgemont high for me, which was awesome. Awesome. Uh, The U2 wrote at that place at the same time is great. Do you still have any of the pieces that you wrote from back then? I do. Yeah. Somewhere. Uh, I've got a bunch of the interviews I did with like Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix when I was a teenager. Yeah. That's so so awesome. That's so right. Is there, are there, are the, what is, is that the interview you remember the most vividly Joplin or somebody like that? Was there anybody else? Joplin, because she was really drunk and in tears, and it was the most emotional interview I've ever done. Wow. It was great. But because of your background, your religious upbringing, um, Revival, Stephen King's novel Revival, must have really resonated strongly with you. And I read your script. I read your script, which was terrific. And that felt like something really personal to me. And we all have really personal projects that don't get off the ground. Sure. Now, eventually they might. And yeah. for now, for now, it's not happening. But tell me a well, little bit no, about. No, I think I, th- I think Mike Flanagan's going to make it, which I couldn't. I was actually sort of thrilled that Mike was going to do it. Uh, he's literally one of my favorite directors. I think his adaptations he's of King stuff has been great. My thing was sort of this. I worked on a couple different Stephen King projects over the years that I was working on The Stand. I did a draft of the talisman for Spielberg's company. So I did, did I. exactly. We've all done a draft of the talisman yeah. at some point, but uh, yeah. you know, I worked on a revival uh, and you know, I really already made revival. I storyboarded the whole movie. I had multiple actors, you know, wanting to be involved, Samuel Jackson, Russell Crowe, people like that. It was just way too expensive for what I was able to generate at the time. Uh, New mutants hadn't come out. The stand hadn't come out. So I'd call it a project that, I already wrote, I already boarded, I had already made it. And once the stand became a real thing, all those other things sort of fell to the side. I sort of knew I was only going to make one and that was going to be the one that would have to count. So uh, I had a couple eggs in my basket and and really waited to see which one was going to go. And I would have told you years ago that the stand was the one that I didn't think would go because it was so expensive and so complicated legally to get made. Uh, But that's the one that ended up getting made. And the the dream that I say that came true is, uh, you know, I'm not getting it to make the whole thing, but uh, I got to do the first one. And most importantly, I got to do the one that King wrote, which really meant uh, is what meant everything to me. Tell me about it. Yeah. yeah uh, so I, I hope, exactly. you know, and he, uh, he, I was able to send him my first cut of that. And he was really enthusiastic about that uh, when he watched it and seems to have enjoyed everything that he's seen. So that's really good. He's the greatest and most enthusiastic cheerleader possible. Well, I mean, but doesn't this go back to what I was saying in some ways? It's like we talk about the projects that we've worked on and the projects we've done. It's like I'm really trying to honor the people that filled my head with imagination from you to King to to Marvel Comics to Cameron Crowe films that I watched when I was young. I mean, you know, and music that I listened to that meant something to me, I guess, uh, 
that's the hardest part is you get very emotionally invested in the co- the corporate side of it is not at all. So it's yeah. uh it's always a strange interlocking between those two things because you have to be deeply emotionally invested to make a movie and they do not want to be emotionally invested at all, you know, and all that. So it's like, it's again, it's just a strange relationship. So that, that's always the trickiest part. Is the replacements movie the next one? Yeah. We're going to do like a four hour limited series. I, you know, I'm even, it's weird to call it a limited series. It's sort of like a four hour movie that's broken into four chapters. We have about a dozen actors attached, including, you know, four of the main actors from the stand are going to come do it with me. Uh, it should be really cool. We'll do it in Minneapolis as soon as we feel like we can safely go and do that. I think next summer, probably. Uh, but the scripts are done and we're sort of uh, gearing up. And I even have actors who are already learning songs and uh, starting to talk to each other. And we've got to you know, do all the music live. Uh, uh, do it live. If if the, you hear the band, it's the real, it'll be the guys that are playing them and singing. And then on the soundtrack, it would be like the replacements music. Uh, so we spent a long time working on that uh, uh, from Bob Mayer's book, Trouble Boys. And he wrote the script with Nate and I, who also wrote a stand episode and worked on New Mutants and all that. That's amazing. Well, what's the holy grail for you? What's the book that you haven't made and adapted that you really, it's the one you need to do before you die? Well, it's like I've I've really had, not had, but I would say I had after Fault in Our Stars and I have again uh, with Clive Barker, who I was talking to today and he told me to tell you uh, hello and all that and that you're amazing. Uh, he's, he loves you. He's, uh, he's you know, we're, we're, we're going to do, uh, you know, I, we worked on a Magicka for about six months back then oh. uh, and we'll do a Magicka at some point. That's something that we've uh, started to do the development on. Uh, Clive was, you know, ill during that time period. So it's like he's very healthy now and doing really great he is uh writing again like a madman and uh so creative and you know just like he's got a lot going on right now so i think you're about to see a resurgence happen uh that's one that i would work on i'd probably just write the first one and direct that one and then you know uh let the rest of him because that's that's a huge undertaking as well uh so if i can get that set up and get that spinning i would be really excited i i've worked with both steve and clive and there's a huge difference in their approach to horror that I've talked about before, but I'd love to get your point of view on the difference between the Clive Barker world and approach to what scares you and the Stephen King world. Well, you know, I think you, you get into the issues. I mean, I'm going to say the issue, but it's like, you know, Stephen King very much draws from our popular culture with the monsters that he brings us. Clive Barker does not, uh, Clive Barker draws from the deep dark well of his, of his the abyss of his mind and his paintings. And, uh, you know, I guess I would say like uh, Stephen King's one of the great storytellers, but it's like Clive Barker might be one of the great visual fabulists. Uh, yeah. It's that kind of uh, intensity of William Burroughs and things like that at times where the, I mean, just stuff that like, you're like, did he take LSD when he wrote this? I mean, how does he see all these things? Uh, I just would say it's really that man. It's, it's, it's the, the fever dream of what he does is very different and they really couldn't be more different writers. I find sort of nothing similar about their prose style or, uh, or, or the way that they structure books or the way they tell stories. I couldn't agree more. And yet these two guys with the deepest, darkest imaginations of all are the sweetest human beings you could ever hope to meet. Yes. They really, truly are. Uh, they're lovely people. Uh, and, you know, it's like I still would love at some point. I mean, I'm not even saying me, but it's like I say to any filmmaker out there, somebody needs to go and do right by Peter Straub. Somebody needs to do yes. mystery. Somebody needs to do Coco mystery in the throat. Somebody needs to do Shadowland. Somebody needs to do ghost story. It's like uh, yeah. that's a guy who has an incredible amount of books. And, you know, like I'm only one person. My hair is already gray. You and I both, <laughs> we, made, we made the stand. So we have gray yeah. hair. And it's yeah, like, that uh, turned mine gray. That's for but, sure. You know, McCammon too. I'd love to see a good yeah. McCammon adaptation done. It's like, I would love yeah. to see, uh, I, even this man, I'd love to see a real good Dean Koontz done from the era of kind of the late 80s to the early 90s. Some book in there would make a good one. Uh, yeah. I think there's still a lot of books out there that are uh, ripe to be imagined or reimagined. Uh, but, but for me, I'm going to go do Trouble Boys. I've got a Philip K. Dick adaptation I'm working on and I'll work on a Magica. That sounds great. Josh Boone, thank you so much sure. for spending some time and comparing notes. And Good. we'll do it again soon. Can I, can I can I PS you one thing? What is it like during this season when everyone watches Hocus Pocus? 
Everybody, <laughs> everybody. Pretty phenomenal. Pretty right? phenomenal. Uh, you can't believe what it's like to have touched the the national psyche with yeah. something you did, you know, 27 years ago, but to have it more popular than ever and it's walk down the street on Halloween and see little girls. Number one movie on iTunes for almost That's the entire right. month of October in that section was that movie. Even number one at the box office as, yeah. as limited as it was. Yeah. So it, it was an amazing experience. Yeah. As as was my visit to the set in Vancouver. We had a good so, time. Josh, good luck with yes, it. Sir. And thank you so and, much. Uh, we will do it again. And we're neighbors. We'll see each other yeah. soon. Yeah, we will. And uh, thank you again. Bless you, sir. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. 